I want to start this morning by sharing uh, a recent news article with you, just a story that I came across, and it goes like this. A rookie firefighter with just two months on the job was hailed a hero Tuesday after he fought through smoke and flames to rescue an unconscious boy trapped in a burning apartment. Justin Tallett, 27, burst into the rear bedroom of a Brooklyn flat around 11 a.m., found the four-year-old boy motionless under a blanket, and then carried him to safety, officials said. Talit, a former army medic who completed a stint in Afghanistan in 2012, brushed off praise, saying he simply relied on his training and instincts. I just knew I had to get him out of the apartment, Talit said, his face still stained with soot. That was really the only thing I was thinking. The critically injured boy, identified as Travell Belton, was resuscitated on his way to the hospital and is expected to survive. He did a wonderful job, Lieutenant Chris Bedard of Laddered 107 said of Talit. It's just good training that we have in the academy of these gentlemen. Gripping photos shot by the Daily News captured the dramatic rescue frame by frame. The call came over at 11.13 a.m. Two minutes later, firefighters arrived on the scene and saw smoke pouring out of the fourth floor window. Through the plumes, the smoke eaters spotted the two older brothers in a window. They were trapped. They had their face through the child gates, said firefighter Frank Blackstone. They were crying. They weren't screaming. Blackstone was initially planning on setting up a portable ladder, but once they spotted the kids, the firefighters realized they didn't have time. So Blackstone went up in a bucket ladder that broke through a handful of branches as it extended skyward. It was amazing how fast those firefighters got up there, said one witness who declined to give her name. I've never seen anything like it. Once the bucket reached the fourth floor, Blackstone broke through the windows with pickaxes and scooped up the two boys, Tremaine, five, and Darian, eight. One of them said there were other family members in the apartment. We were able to pull them out and bring them down to the street, Blackstone said, but their youngest brother remained inside. Once they made it into the apartment after crawling through the hallway, Talit and a crew of his fellow bravest doused the flames with their water cans and fanned out. Talit, after rushing into the rear bedroom, headed for the bed. The blankets were there, he said. I felt something under the blankets and I grabbed him and I took him out. And I handed him to another unit, a floor below, and then I went back in, Talit said. You know, the story goes on to say that the boy survived the ordeal and Talit was hailed as a hero, obviously. Two months on the job, and he had all the daring necessary to put his own life on the line to save the life of somebody that he didn't even know. And it's a simple news story, right? But it has all of the makings of a great drama, doesn't it? A little boy whose very life is being threatened by flame, frail and helpless and desperately in need of a savior. And a humble hero risking his life with little or no thought, saving a boy again who he had no idea, uh, had never met before, and then rushing back into the flames to look for others to see if he could find them. I mean, really, this is the, the stuff of Hollywood movies, isn't it? And I've always wondered why so many stories written by humankind all throughout the millennia have this same overused plot, really. It's overused, isn't it? And yet they still manage to grip our hearts. I mean, maybe you saw The Matrix or Titanic or Avatar, or I could go on and on and on. So many of these big movies, this is the theme. And could it be that deep down in our hearts somewhere, 
there's something that resonates with these kinds of stories because we all understand that we're in the thick of our own heroic drama. We like these kinds of salvation stories because in some way they relate to our own story. And you probably see where I'm going with this in the midst of our epic series, but why don't you turn with me to Isaiah 43 and let me show you a little bit more what I mean. If you don't have your Bible, that's okay. You can listen along as I read it. And if you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one. So swing by the bookstore after the service and we will set you up with one. Again, we're going to be in Isaiah 43. It's the big, big, fat book in the middle of your Bible there. So let me read this. Isaiah 43, starting in verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. The flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Before we can really understand what this text means for us, I think we have to understand its significance to Israel, okay? Because this prophecy belongs first to the nation of Israel. That's who Isaiah wrote it for. And Isaiah was a prophet sent by God. These aren't just his words. They're the words of God. And he was sent to proclaim a dire message of warning to God's people. He was chosen as God's instrument to tell the people of Israel that their wickedness, their sin, their disobedience, their infidelity to the covenant that he had made with them, the covenant of love, would bring consequences as that covenant stipulated. Because Israel had turned from God, God intended to send the nation of Assyria to destroy Israel and remove them from the promised land. Again, if you've been hanging around with us as we've gone through this epic series, we talked about the covenant and what that meant and the promise, the part that Israel was supposed to uphold. And the first 40 chapters of Isaiah are all about God's judgment on Israel. The coming Assyrian invasion, the destruction of Jerusalem, and Israel's captivity. Forty chapters God spends warning the people of Israel. There are a few proclamations of hope woven throughout, but for the most part, it's just judgment for breaking the covenant. God is angry with Israel for breaking his heart like they promised they would not do by breaking the covenant that he had made with them. And then around chapter 40, in chapter 40, there's a dramatic shift in the overall idea, the overall message of Isaiah. And the theme moves from being primarily about God's judgment to being about God's redemption, God's comfort, his restoration that he planned to pour out on Israel in spite of their faithlessness. 
And so with this really intense backdrop, the first 40 chapters of Isaiah, judgment for sin and disobedience, the whole final third of the book of Isaiah is all about God's compassion on his people and his plan to rescue them and save them and revive them. So this sets the scene then for our text from Isaiah 43, where we see God speak very tenderly to the people of Israel with some really, really stunning language. But we're not Israel, are we? I'm not Jewish. This stuff from the Old Testament, does it really have anything to do with us? If we're not Israel, why read it if it doesn't pertain to our lives? If this was a prophecy written to Jews, to the Jewish nation of Israel, by Isaiah around 700 AD, before, I'm sorry, BC, before Christ, forgive me, what does it matter for us today? What does it matter? Well, the reason is because we are, in fact, Israel. Romans chapters 9 through 11, if you were to read it closely, we don't have time to go through uh, two chapters of Romans today, but Romans chapters 9 through 11 tells us that the church that was established by Jesus, the global historical church in the Apostles' Creed, the Catholic church, the universal church that carries the name of Jesus Christ, of which Maricopa Springs is a part today, the people who populate that church have become the Israel of God. We've been adopted, or better yet, we've been grafted into the tree of Israel so that Israel's roots are our roots. We might use the term spiritual Israel. Israel. We are spiritual Israel. We have become the Israel to whom the promises of God apply. They applied first to Israel, and Israel benefited from them in the Old Testament, but now they also belong to us, and they also benefit us. And that's why you can read the Old Testament in your Bible and hear the Holy Spirit whispering to your heart that it means something special, something significant for you too. Even though you don't live in 1000 BC or 500 BC, you can read this book that's over 3000 years old and you can understand it and be moved by it. Maybe you've had an experience similar to that where you've been reading the Old Testament, you've come across an Old Testament prophecy or maybe a psalm during your devotional life at home. And reading it and thinking about it has stirred your heart, even though God is speaking specifically to an ancient culture that you have no relationship with whatsoever. Well, the reason is because these promises belong to us as well, because we have entered into the promises God made to his people Israel. So therefore, in Isaiah 43, we see God's stance towards us who believe today. His stance towards Christians. We see what God did specifically for Israel in the past. His promise to bring his people out of exile in Assyria and back into the promised land. But we also see what God has done for us through Christ Jesus. What he accomplished through the heroic rescue of Christ on the cross, and what God is still doing for his people who call on his name to this day, who trust in him to be saved and have therefore become children of God. That's what we see in Isaiah 43. Look again at the verses with me. I want to read through it slowly and point a few things out to you. Verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. 
I have called you by name. You are mine. God has scooped us up with his mighty hands to claim us as his and redeem us and restore us. And he now calls us by name. We are not strangers to God. Scripture tells us that we are friends. Verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. The flame shall not consume you. God promises that when we go through trials and suffering in this life, because of his great love for us, we will not perish. And notice that he does not promise that we will not go through the rivers or the fires of this life but he promises that as we pass through the fires and the rivers, that we will be victorious because God will be with us. Verse three, for I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. We see that God is our Savior and he has paid the ransom for our salvation. For Israel, he may have given Egypt and Cush and Seba, but he's paid a much higher price for us, hasn't he? Not nations, but instead God has given his very own son in exchange for our lives. The very life of Jesus for our life paid as the price to buy us out of exile to sin and death. Verse four, because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. And God expressly states right here, right here, that his people are precious to him, that he loves us, And that he was willing to pay even the price of blood for our redemption. To pull us out of rebellion. To bring us home and back into a right relationship with him. I think you should underline this verse in your Bible. I think maybe you should memorize it. Write it on a note card. Tape it to your bathroom mirror. Your dashboard. Whatever it is. So that you don't ever forget what Jesus did for you. And the fact of the matter is... That as one of God's people from scripture, you are precious in his eyes and loved. In verses 5 through 6 then, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. These verses tell us that God is gathering his people together. And the reason why the clock of history continues its slow crawl is because God is patiently gathering his people together. From all the corners of the globe, he is building his kingdom with the redeemed. And Israel went into exile for their sin, but God promised to bring them back to the promised land. And humanity, too, has been banished to exile from the presence of God because of our sin. But God is drawing his people out from all of the nations and tribes and tongues and peoples across the globe to usher them into his kingdom. And we are a part of that magnitude. And he is at work in the world this very day to accomplish these promises. And verse 7 tells us why. 
Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Verse 7 tells us why God has done and continues to do all of these things. You have to understand that there is something behind the love of God that is the fuel which drives the relentless engine of his love. And it is his glory. It is his glory. Yes, God loves us. He loves us enough to give us his name, to call us his own. He made us and he formed us in his image. But why? Why has God done all of this for our sake? Is it only because he loves us? No. Although his love for us is incomprehensibly great, limitless in its scope and beauty, the reason why God has done all of this is for his glory. Now try and think about this for a second. When a firefighter runs into the chaos of a burning building and rescues a helpless child stuck inside, who is the hero of that story? Who gets the glory and the honor and the praise from the bravery and the rescue and the heroics? Who deserves to be honored? Who risked their life for the life of another? Who made it possible for that child to be redeemed from the flames and destruction and once again be given life? Of course, everybody is thrilled the child came out alive. That is the result, of course. But would we ever say that the child is the hero of that story? Not a chance, right? See, in our sin, we were like children playing with matches in the house. And in our foolishness, and our rebellion from God, we set the world ablaze with sin. And we condemned it to destruction. The rebellion of Adam and Eve made it so that we were born into a world of flames. A world that is perishing. We have a sinful nature which means that from the moment we are conceived, we are condemned. But God was not willing to let us perish. He was not afraid of the flames and what it would cost him, nor was he simply satisfied to stand outside, removed from the burning building, and yell out at us, come, come out to me, as if we could do it in our own works and righteousness. Nor will he allow anyone else to steal his glory of being the hero of the story who runs in to rescue us. As if a fearful four-year-old could really face the flames and find his own way out. It's just not going to happen. And instead of leaving us to our own devices, instead of abandoning us, instead of trying to helplessly let us find our own way out, God entered into that burning building to pull us out. He became the rescuer so that everyone could see that he is the God who saves, so that we all might turn to him and give him glory and honor and praise for the fact that he is the celebrated hero, Jesus, so that we might see that if it hadn't been for him, for his daring to come in and look for us, we would never have made it out on our own. And God made us for his glory. He saved us for his glory. And he loves us for his glory. And when you consider the burns that Jesus suffered to save us from the flames, the pain that he experienced 
to give us relief from suffering. Doesn't, doesn't your heart just leap with gratitude? When you actually take a moment to reflect on that, doesn't your heart jump with joy for what Christ did on the cross for you? Don't you, don't you feel a desire to praise and to worship and honor this hero who gave so much to redeem you from the flames? And I hope it does. I hope it does. At least in these moments on Sunday morning. If I could summarize our passage from Isaiah, I would do it like this. God loves us for his glory. God loves us for his glory. Oh, how God loves us. A greater act of love than the cross you will never find. And God loves us for his glory. He saved us because of his love for us. And he saved us so that we might worship and glorify him for our salvation. He rushed into the burning building of creation to pull us out. And he then deserves to be honored as the hero of the epic story for being our savior. So obviously worship for God, giving glory to God for his work in saving us, is one way that we should respond to the passage in Isaiah 43. Worship, we talked about that a little bit last week. But is there any other application, any other way to respond? Is there anything more to this than just that warm, fuzzy feeling that hopefully you're feeling? I have two more ideas that I want to share with you. The first one is this. How stable is your self-worth? Ponder that for a second. How stable is your self-worth? Well, it's actually a trick question. Because as a Christian, there's no such thing as self-worth. If you're the type of person who tends to get down on yourself, you don't need to think better about yourself. If you suffer from loneliness or insecurity or fear or relational baggage, like we all do, if you have self-image issues because of your looks or your weight or your behavior, if you struggle with feeling like you don't belong or you don't fit in or you aren't good enough, the solution is not to try and think better about yourself. You need to stop thinking about yourself entirely. And you need to start thinking about God and what he says about you. You need to take the meditation of your mind and your heart off of yourself and you need to meditate on God. That's what we do. We meditate on ourselves. Which is why we're depressed and isolated and lonely and fearful and afraid. And you need to meditate on the truth of God's word and on God himself. You need to understand that because you are precious in the eyes of God and you are honored by him and because he loves you and because he gave Jesus in return for you, Jesus in exchange for your life, then you are worth it. You need to spend some time this week maybe specifically reading Isaiah 43 and soaking in the truth of God's word that your life is valuable in every possible way because you are a child of God. That is the greatest value and the only value of your life. It all comes from him. And right here in this passage, God tells you that he loves you, he made you, and he calls you by name. And he proved all of it by sending Jesus to redeem you. He proved it by making Jesus the glorious hero of your rescue story. 
And maybe you're one of those people who for your whole life you've never felt confident about who you are. Maybe because your parents belittled you as a child or because maybe your spouse today even humiliates you. Maybe it's because your boss discourages you or because you've never felt beautiful or loved or appreciated or treasured. Maybe it's because other kids at school tease you or because, worst of all, you think that God sits in heaven frowning down upon you for some reason. And it's time to be free of those lies, to rest in the truth of God through Jesus that God could not possibly love you more or value you more than he already does. And if your worth is found in you, then it's going to ebb and flow depending on how harshly the world judges you in any given day. And we all know the world can judge harshly. But if it's found in the rock-solid truth that God gave his life through the precious blood of Jesus in exchange for your life, then your value is fixed and limitless and the judgments of the world are irrelevant. And if you could only see yourself the way that Jesus sees you. And maybe reading Isaiah 43 this week might help you do that. And standing firm on this truth, I am a precious child of the Most High God. Now the second thing is, don't forget as you read Isaiah this week, don't forget that God loves you for his glory. And the whole purpose of your life is to glorify God. That is the purpose of your life. If you've ever asked the question, why am I here? Is it to make money for a corporation? Is it to own a house? Is it just to raise children? Is it to acquire more stuff? Is it even to build a well in India? No, 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 no. The real answer to that question is you are here to bring glory to God. And if you've ever wondered why your life is just not as satisfying as you thought it would be, it's because you're living short of the purpose of your existence, which is to bring God glory. You were created to bring glory to God. And so ask yourself the question, who is receiving glory from my life? Is it me or is it God? So you might hear that and you might say, as I close, wow, Grady, I love God. I want to bring him more glory. How do I do that? What does that look like? Well, I've always loved John Piper's response to that question. Maybe you're already familiar with it. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Giving glory to God can be as simple as being satisfied in him. Jesus, it's enough that you died for me. Father, how beautiful that you love me. Holy Spirit, how wonderful that you live inside of me. God receives glory when our attention and our thoughts and our worship are turned towards him as the true source of all good things and the cause of our happiness that sits in our hearts. And so you have some time right now in our worship service as we turn to singing to give God glory, to soak in the satisfaction of the blood of Christ that you are redeemed. But don't leave it here. Don't let it be just here. Take it home with you all week, every day. 
And singing songs is meaningless unless it turns our hearts to worship. And so my hope is that in these final moments, you'll, you'll turn your heart and your affections and your attention to God and give him glory by simply telling him how satisfied you are in him. He has pulled you out of the burning building. He has saved you and redeemed you through Christ. He has given you the title of precious child of God. And all that's left for him to do now that you're redeemed, all that's left for him to do is to give you more joy and more happiness and more desire for him that he can satisfy for you as your satisfaction in him grows. And so let's let our hearts be satisfied in Christ as we sing in honor our glorious God. Let me pray. God, you deserve the glory not only because you are beautiful, not only because you are eternal, not only because you are brilliant, but because you've made a way, because you've saved us, because you've redeemed us, because you've brought us out of exile and back into your presence. And you deserve the glory for all things, God. But in these moments, we give you the glory that we are your beloved children, that the promises of Israel now fall on us because of your redemption through Christ. God, would you take these words that we sing from the depths of our hearts and would you use them to bring glory to your name, we pray. Amen.